Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Stephen G. Post and his book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. Stephen G. Post is a founding member of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University Renaissance School of Medicine, where he also serves as a professor of family, population, and preventative medicine. He is an elected member of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Board of Alzheimer's Disease International and one of only three recipients of the Alzheimer's Association's Distinguished Service Award. His first book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, was hailed as a medical classic of the century by the British Medical Journal. He has been quoted in numerous national and international publications, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Newsweek, and Psychology Today, and has been interviewed on major news shows from ABC's Nightline to NPR's Talk of the Nation. Filled with patient case studies and wisdom from caregivers and clinicians, his book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, is a welcome resource for the millions of families affected by Alzheimer's disease, whose numbers will only grow as the population ages. This is an interview you are not going to want to miss. The content is just wonderful. He's a great person to talk to, and I think you're going to really love some of the wisdom that he brings in this episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcoming back to the podcast, we have Dr. Stephen Post, PhD. Thank you so much for being here. Paul, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to see you again. Wonderful. And today's episode, we're going to be, of course, talking about your new book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease, which I have so far enjoyed reading. It's a wonderful resource for anybody who is dealing with Alzheimer's or any other memory challenges and the families of those. Um, and we're going to jump right into that. However, I want the listeners to know if they want to know about your background extensively, we have a uh, great episode, episode 35, that uh, on the Intentional Clinician podcast, and we talked about your book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, and uh, it has a lot of interesting philosophical points in it, and it has a lot about your early life and um, how you got to the jobs and and uh, opportunities that you had to become a uh professor and scientist and all of these things. So, yes. Welcome. Well, it's a delight. I couldn't be happier. Great. So, I am I would just love to kind of for our listeners. Now, I've of course read a little bit about your bio, but can you talk about perhaps a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the study of uh individuals with uh, memory issues and deeply forgetful people in general? Well, on, on a personal level, it goes right back to my grandmother, Grandma Post. We were quite close. She had what was probably Alzheimer's disease, but it was before the language of Alzheimer's was used widely. Uh, it was senile dementia back in the day. She was in a nursing home. I would come by fairly regularly and do assisted oral feeding 
with her. That was before they even had these dreaded feeding pigs. There were people on staff who knew how to help with hand feeding. And I learned that craft. And that's the applesauce and the bran and whatever it is. And my grandmother would uh, not be able to converse uh, in a conversational modality. But she surprised me from time to time and would just call out my name. And uh, also I could see her affect uh, enliven, quickening, uh, could see a kind of brightness in her eyes and a smile. And there was a kind of ritualistic dimension to uh, what we were doing. And it was meaningful connection. So I learned early on in life that um, nobody's ever gone absent, a husk, a shell, empty, uh, dead for all intents and purposes, that they may have communication challenges, they may be opaque, but you have to be open to surprises. And the book talks about a lot of caregivers who have been quite amazed at people coming back into themselves, at least sporadically. So what does that mean? Well, it gives people hope. Uh, Grandma's still there. The seventh chapter of this book is Grandma's Still There is my favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's uh, part of it. But the other thing is I was so fortunate uh, way back in 1988 to be recruited to Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. And that was uh, directly by a remarkable neurologist named Joseph Michael Foley, to whom the book is dedicated. He wanted to start a clinical, ethical, social program for uh, people with dementia and their families. And so I worked with him for 20 years uh, and he was an amazing human being. One of the, He was actually one of the founders of the Alzheimer's Association and he loved these people. He would sit down with someone, no matter how deeply forgetful, and he would always call them by name as if expecting an answer. And sometimes an answer would come and sometimes it wouldn't. But he was one who really believed that uh, underneath uh, the silence or the chaos, the person was still there. And I spent about 20 years, you know, in, from Cleveland, all around the country, working with Alzheimer's chapters, all through Canada, all through Japan, all through Australia, all through the, uh, the UK. And this became my, my mission, my devotion. And this book, uh, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, is my effort to really improve the language game and the, the attitude towards this population. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so it's a, it's a quite a large project. There's the social aspects, there's the scientific study, there's the research. There are also just working on the way we think about people who have um, something like Alzheimer's disease, which can make you deeply forgetful, especially in the short term, and how people view them. Uh, and so I see like a, a, a philosophical angle running through where people aren't just saying, oh, they have a dementia or they aren't there. You're saying deeply forgetful, which is sort of revering them. And I think that kind of goes to the dignity that these are people. Yes. And just because they can't communicate with us, perhaps like somebody with a better memory, doesn't mean that we should treat them as less than. Yeah, 100% 
core to the book. And, you know, a title, a good title tells you a lot. So this is dignity. My rough translation of that would be hold someone in grace. Um, Deeply forgetful people as an alternative to dementia, because dementia is, it's a neurological term, of course, in its origins, but it means a decline from a former mental state. And Hmm. so we hear the word dementia used derisively. Um, We hear it used as a political insult. Oh, they're just demented, you know. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, uh, some of our politicians have done that um, in recent years even. And I, uh, I, I think that it invites abuse, and there is a lot of abuse in this field, uh, I tell the story about a, an event I witnessed in a parking lot in Cleveland at the Foley Elder Healthcare Center. And, uh, an old man uh, drives up to the elder uh, healthcare program and, and uh, his wife is in the, in the passenger seat and she has obviously considerable problems with deep forgetfulness and she can't remember how to open the door and and he grows frustrated and he starts screaming at her and and calls her demented such and such and i walked over there and i said well yeah but you know there's a better way to handle this and so i I opened the door for her and we escorted her in and the man was apologetic but dementia opens the opens the window for um negative stereotypes, negative metaphors, gone, husk, shell, empty, dead. And at its worst, um, in in Nazi Germany, just to get a sense of how egregious this can be, uh, there was a program between 1939 and 1940 called Tiergestrasse 4, or T4, it's based in Munich. And they took 70,000 people out of asylums, about half of them estimated to have had dementing type conditions. Um, The others were struggling with cognitive developmental difficulties, but they took these individuals and, and these were not part of the typically discriminated against groups. They were not Jews, they were not gypsies, they were not people of color. They were not Catholics from Northern Poland. They were not gays or anything that was categorically uh, to be eliminated. These were good Aryans, if you will, you know, uh, true-blooded Germans, but they had one thing going against them. Um, they were deeply forgetful and therefore they, they were life unworthy of life. That was one way they were described. They were useless eaters and so forth. And they were, over that year and a half period, they were left to freeze outside, uh, lying down in the snow, um, uh, lying down on uh, patches of ice. Uh, and then they would be brought back into the asylums and thawed out in hot air or in hot water, uh, different temperature gradients. And the Germans, of course, said, well, we want to know at what point it becomes really futile to send rescue teams into the icy waves of the North Atlantic to rescue our pilots or submariners. Of course, that was hideous and no justification for anything. But this went on uh, uh, for quite a little while. And finally, the German people themselves were so uh, 
disgusted by it, that they stop T4 and the same PIs, a couple of psychiatrists who I won't bother us with in terms of their names, uh, they took the, the hypothermia experiments right to the death camps of Dachau and Auschwitz. But, you know, we had, I, I mean, you know, when Henry Beecher, who was the great um, physician and moral pioneer at Harvard, uh, an anesthesiologist, wrote his classic article in the mid-1960s in, in the New England Journal of Medicine, exposing 22 cases of hideous research abuse. He included one uh, where researchers from a distinguished cancer institute in Manhattan, who that will otherwise go unnamed because he didn't name them in his article, but he had lots of data that he left with the editors of the New England Journal so that they could know it was all true. But they took the train down to Brooklyn Heights and they uh, injected uh, cancer cells into older adults who were completely deeply forgetful, could in no way consent. And in some instances, these uh, tumors actually took hold of them. And, and, and so this was in New York and this was in the early 60s. And there's a lot of history of, of abuse. And, and we need to really think about that because somehow or another, you know, we're not inclusive enough in our moral imagination about who really matters in the fabric of our social world and in our ethics. Yes, I appreciate that background and summary of why some of what you write in the book is from a completely different angle because there is a history of exploiting, killing, experimenting on people uh, just because they were unable to consent or perhaps uh, like in the Nazi Germany, it was considered as some sort of experiment, but it was just terrible. And uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I do know that just because somebody's deeply forgetful doesn't mean they are always forgetful. And oftentimes the long-term memory is intact. And also they can still feel pain and they still have some conception of what is going on, even if it's not as uh, broad as someone else without uh, a forgetful part of their memory. Is that yeah. what you say? It's, it's, it's so true. And so if you've seen, you've seen one case of dementia, you've seen one case. Typically, um, you know, dementia, by the way, is a spectrum. It's a cluster of symptoms, including memory loss and some cognitive decline, maybe some behavioral dimensions. Um, but it's a cluster of those symptoms that can be caused by more than 100 different diseases. So 100 years ago, Paul, you know, the major cause of dementia, at least in the Western world, ask Gauguin about this was neurosyphilis, mm. right? And um, that was, again, it wasn't justification, but that was what was thinking, the thinking of the CDC when they started doing the famous and the notorious Tuskegee research. Um, they wanted to follow the course of syphilis uh, to the point where it affected the, the brain of the African-American male. Uh, horrible stuff, but that's what they were after. So uh, right now, I mean, there are many causes of dementia. There, there is dementia secondary to Parkinson's disease, as you know, 
dementia secondary to chronic traumatic encephalitis. The movie Concussion came out a few years ago. That was a pretty good movie, actually, with uh, Smiley, who played center for the Pittsburgh uh, Steelers and finally uh, killed himself in his uh, in his truck. Um, but uh, people are being very careful with high school sports programs now about uh, preventing kids from, they don't need a concussion. They just have to keep bamming, bamming their head against the wall. Uh, it could be ice hockey. It could be soccer with a soccer ball heading. You got to be careful about these things. But most of these diagnoses are mixed. There's also vascular dementia, small stroke events in the white matter of the brain. Uh, which is why things like diet and exercise and good vasculature can be preventive over the course of a lifetime. So there are lifestyle interventions. Um, I think that uh, stress itself, uh, you know, most neurologists now agree, they didn't 15 years ago, that protracted stress uh, will cause shrinkage of the hippocampus, mm. that part of the mm. brain that's connected with laying down of short-term memories. So, so it's a mixed bag, and you can't predict the exact course of any of these situations. How we interact with these people makes a difference in the actual course of the disease because of neuroplasticity and so forth. So if we treat them with kindness, we may see that reflected in their, in their, in their progression. Uh, so, so we really need to be careful uh, not to pigeonhole people um, and think that this is all biologically determined in some simple way. And Alzheimer's does cause probably about 50% of cases of dementia now because we're living to be older. Uh, uh, and that's an important consideration, but there's no scientific breakthrough when it comes to Alzheimer's. That's why the pharmacological industry is so uh, frustrated. Um, it just, you know, Alzheimer himself, just FYI, in, in 1907, he described the case of a, 53-year-old woman named Augusta D near Mark Bright, Germany, where he was from. And uh, he found these, uh, on autopsy, uh, these plaques in her brain, but he did not think he discovered a disease. The guy he worked for, Kropotkin, hmm. a famous psychiatrist said, you know, we need to name a disease after Dr. Alzheimer. So they came up with Alzheimer's disease, but he thought that it was just a natural part of brain aging Mm. And that if we all live long enough, we would have these symptoms. And in fact, you know, uh, now, if you look at the studies on, say, women who are over 95 years of age, and we have some pretty good studies on them because they're living longer, um, about 60% of them have dementia. So it's not like you hit 85 and you're over the hump. You know, you're right. out, you're out of danger. And so Alzheimer may have been right. And the brain, like any other organ, ages, right? I mean, my thing in the book is I think even though that can affect communication and a lot of other things, self-control, physical control, central nervous system, I don't think it means that the person is no longer there. Yes. I think that's important to the philosophy of how we care for those afflicted and suffering and also what forms of treatment or multi-layers of different treatments. You know, like you said, uh, there's of course medications, there are social programs, there is uh, caring homes, there are uh, just a range of treatments and 
or palliative care. I, I don't know if that's what you'd call it, but just making sure people are able to have their daily needs met. Uh, and there's not a one size fits all for it. And we know that uh, in 2021, there was a new drug approved for Alzheimer's treatment by the FDA. And actually, I did a whole podcast on that last oh, year. Really? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I interviewed the authors of American Dementia. Oh, um, Peter Whitehouse. Uh, yeah, yeah, Whitehouse. Uh, and uh, and it's, colleagues for many years. Yeah, they're on. It's on the website somewhere, but I can't remember what episode. I'll have to find that out and say later in there. But they they completely, you know, talked about that on my podcast from every angle and, and oh, yeah. why they did not agree uh, with the one size fits all drug approach and uh, highly experimental and the studies around it. So, um, so yeah, people want to hear that, that episode is, is there, uh, for sure. Nobody knows what causes this condition. I mean, it's a, it's, it's still quite a mystery and the drugs that we have, I won't name them, you know, by label, but they're in a category called cholinesterase inhibitors. And Peter Whitehouse uh, was one of the major forces in de developing the so-called cholinergic hypothesis. But basically, you know, if you look at these studies, these, these individuals, you know, it, it, by, by beefing up the amount of acetylcholine in the, in the hippocampus, you could have a little more communication between brain cells but all you would get as a result, people with mild dementia might have a little better word finding ability for a brief period of time, or maybe a little more attention to tasks. So instead of having one sip of their tea and wandering off, forgetting about the cup, they come back and have a second, but it mm -hmm. did very little. It didn't, and as Peter often said, because we were very close colleagues that you know, it was like treating a brain tumor with aspirin. Neurologists do give aspirin to people with brain tumors for certain symptoms, but clearly this has no impact on the underlying course of the condition. So there's no magic bullet, and we need to focus much more on social interactions, on music and memory, on Alzheimer's poets, on uh, the intergenerational schools that Peter probably talked about. That's all um, really, really, really vital. And to do that, we have to change our attitudes and not view people in this derogatory sense of demented, but think of them as deeply forgetful and on a continuum with everybody else. Very good. Very good. And I just researched here, it is episode 70, brain health and aging and unhealth in an unhealthy society with Peter Whitehouse and Daniel George. Yes. And so you can check that out. Um, for for a long discussion about uh, medications and other alternative programs. But in, in terms of your book here and what you've done here, this book is for a lot of caregivers, it seems. Um, and, and that's kind of the target of this or people interested in this. Can you talk about a little bit about what you've learned helps um, families and people who are deeply forgetful. You mentioned music and poetry. Can you can you elaborate a little bit about these sort of things? Yeah, I, I, I sure can. Um, in Brooklyn, there's a memory disorders center uh, and people with deep forgetfulness uh, come there. They don't, by the way, call it an Alzheimer's support program because a lot of people don't like the word Alzheimer's. Mm. 
But memory disorders, you know, that's more palatable. So people will come, they'll, caregivers will bring their loved ones. It's a big open room about 50 feet by 50 feet, uh, at least the main room. And there are comfortable chairs. You might have 30 or 40 people with dementia sitting or sitting in a circle, uh, you know, lining the walls and, and their caregivers with them. And you'll have a couple of Alzheimer's poets in the middle and they will recite a poem that this particular age group would likely be familiar with, like Robert Frost's The Road Less Traveled. Um, and they'll do it with enthusiasm. They'll, they'll do it musically. Uh, they will be full of energy. And then they will invite people to join. And I will tell you that, uh, as I've witnessed it on numerous occasions, about 80% of the people in that room will actually start reciting the poem with these poets. Uh, now, some of them will just recite um, a line or a few words. Some of them will actually stand up and recite the whole damn thing. Mm -hmm. And and then after that, you know, they're more animated. They become emotionally lively. And a certain percentage of them, not all of them, but a percentage of them will actually be able to respond to their caregivers if the caregivers ask questions rightly, so that part of this book, there's a nice appendix about communication techniques. You never use open-ended questions mm. in this population. So you, you know, you and you learn these, this is a rule to, to remember. You never say, hey, how are your kids? You say, how's Luke? Ah, uh, how's Tommy Boy? Right. You never say, hey. What would you like for breakfast? Because what you're doing is you're putting the person who's deeply forgetful on the spot. Mm, pressure. They've got to recover words now. You want to do that for them. So you say, hey, would you like to have an omelet? Or how about post-toasties? Right. And, and then you're cueing them. You use language to engage them, bring them in, instead of drive them away. Uh, um, yes. So that the, the Alzheimer's poets do great. We we have again. This, I'm just I'm 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 a Clevelander by nature and disposition. I'm not a New Yorker, but I've been in New York for 13 years at Stony Brook. Um, but there is a a big choir in Manhattan called the Unforgettables. Mm. Okay, and so caregivers will get together weekly and rehearse, you know, popular music, you know, from musicals, you know, uh, um, uh, and 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 they'll or or pieces from their particular traditions that if it's a, if it's a church based or a synagogue based thing uh but but typically you know they'll they'll do you know Oklahoma or whatever and and then they will practice it and in practicing it they connect with one another they laugh they have positive emotional experiences it's very positive psychology you know and and there's there's laughter uh people begin to brighten up People who were otherwise not communicative will begin to communicate. And then they have a, a actual uh, concert on a monthly basis at, uh, this is before COVID, at St. Peter's Lutheran Church on Lexington and 50th. And people come from all over to hear this. And afterwards, it's incredibly warm. There's a lot of good websites about the unforgettables. 
And then Dan Cohen, who founded uh, musicandmemory.com, he's from Mineola, which is maybe 20 minutes uh, west of Stony Brook. And, uh, you know, he's done a beautiful job using an, uh, an iPod uh, with music that caregivers identify as meaningful to that individual earlier on. For me, it would be the Beatles, I want to hold your hand. Okay. <laughs> I can remember everything about hearing that the first time. And, and, um, and they'll play that. And, and in, you know, something like 90% of the individuals, if you have the right bit of music, they'll start getting somatic, they'll get rhythmic, they'll tap into that really basic evolved aspect of the human being. And then most of them will begin to sing a bit. And afterwards, about two thirds of them might even be able to respond to the rightly phrased question. Now that will dissipate, you know, they'll fade back. But as Dan has shown in his research, um, after that intervention, um, they're much calmer over the rest of the day, and they don't typically have to rely on novel neuroleptics, uh, uh, sedation, and so forth, which they shouldn't use anyway. But um, people will be more centered, to use a sort of a mindfulness term, okay? They'll be more centered. So the world is coming at them, and it, it's a bit bleary and beeping and buzzing, and, 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 and it's anxiety-producing for them. But if you give them this opportunity to kind of center themselves in, in, in that core part of their being, they'll do better with it. They can manage it better over the course of the day. And we did a little study, it was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia, on people with um, eating difficulties. Most people will get to a point where they're struggling because they can't really remember how to swallow. Mm. And what we showed is that by using a music and memory intervention, like an hour before mealtime, um, they will remember how to swallow. So, so there's a lot we can do. And you know, I tell a story in the book of a of a guy that Joe, Dr. Foley, and I, Dr. Foley, my mentor, he was in a, a nursing home in Chardon, Ohio, called uh, Heather Hill, and. Uh, they had an Alzheimer's unit, a specialized Alzheimer's unit. And we read the little bio sketch on the wall of a guy named Jim. And it said Jim had two sons, gave them, gave their names, uh, told us a little bit about what he had done for a living. He was a businessman. And so we went out into the, into the unit. There were probably 20 or so people ambulating around. And I asked the nurse, so where's Jim? And she said, oh, he's over there. So I went over to Jim and I took him by the arm and we sat him down at a table. And, uh, and, I, and I used language wrongly. I said, Jim, how are your sons? And he couldn't respond. Mm. Then I yeah. asked him, you know, how's Jamie and how's Luke? And he got excited, you know, he lit up, he lit yeah. up. And, and it was amazing. And, and so I really learned that lesson that day. And, and then he had a, he, he wasn't able to converse much, but he had a white, smooth, sanded, painted twig in his hand that was, you know, blunted on the ends. And um, he handed it to me. And when he handed it to me, um, if joy was electric, that place would have been on fire. Hmm. 
And I took it and I smiled. I said, thank you. I gave it back to him. And then I asked the nurse, so what's the story about Jim and his twig? Turns out he grew up on a farm in, again, you know, Northeastern Ohio. And he and his father were very close. And for you who understand attachment theory and separation anxiety better than most, you know, right? he, you know, uh, like a lot of these folks, he had gone back in time to a point of tender, loving care and attachment because he loved his father so much. And his father went, went to a, a Protestant church, you know, uh, and, 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 and gave uh, Jim a chore every morning, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. So, um, so he gave, when he, and by the way, when he gave me that kindling and put it in my hand, he said just three words, which is in the book. And Joe, he said, God is love. Mm. So, so somehow or another, he is, so his short-term memory, and you know, that, that was deeply affected. Obviously he couldn't function. He couldn't remember things that he had immediately picked up, but his deeper memory, his autobiographical memory was much more preserved. And that's what people, that's what I want to say to everybody who reads this book. You can work with that. Your job as a caregiver is not to be derisive you know, or dismissive, but to actually connect with that continuity of, of self. And, and so that's what I really, really, I, one little, another little story. So Joe and I, we traveled all around the country and all around Ohio and whatever. Um, uh, there's a geriatric psychiatric hospital in Mount Vernon, Ohio, which is about an hour south of Cleveland, maybe about an hour and a half west of Pittsburgh. And there's a special uh, wing of that hospital for people with Down syndrome. Because when people with Down syndrome hit 45 or 50, they typically have a diagnosis of probable Alzheimer's. Whatever it is, they, they have forms of dementia and they decline more precipitously. And so Joe and I, was, we spent a morning there and we noticed these magnificent Hindu uh, 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 nurses and nurses' aides and a couple of doctors. They had a little community, believe it or not, in the middle of Ohio. And they took such diligent care of these individuals. They were so, they weren't reacting to them. They were responding to them. They were mindful of their emotional state. They were loving. They were kind. And you could just see how powerful it was. So Joe and I took a few of them out to a restaurant in Gambier, Ohio, where Kenyon College is, and it's a pizza place. And we sat them down and, and we just asked them, we said, you know, we are so impressed. What makes you so caring? And they said a word that most of your listeners will, will know. They said, namaste, mm. which in, in Hindu, it means that's their greeting, but it has a spiritual meaning. It means I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. So yes. we're all part of our minds are not just derived from biology, from brain, from cells and tissue, but our minds are gifts from the one mind as Einstein or some of the other great physicists commented, Larry Dossi in his great book, One Mind. Um, so, so our minds uh, are much more connected than we than we think. So when someone says namaste, I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. 
what they're doing is they're saying, I honor the eternity within you. Even though you've had brain destruction, you're not any less significant. And this book is endorsed by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. I saw that in the in the inner cover, yeah. Yeah, so I got an invite from the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies in Bangalore, India. And this was, actually, I have this stuff right up here on my wall. That was uh, 2015. And I flew over there, hell of an airport in Bangalore, by the way, and uh, beautiful. And I went to this institute and we had a whole conference for two days with Hindu neurologists, Hindu philosophers on um, dementia and deep forgetfulness. And I gave my talk about dignity and deeply forgetful people and why our Western theories of linear rationality and rational agency are too narrow and exclusive to include these individuals. We need something much broader, more like symbolic rationality. Like, you know, like Jim still knew that his identity was wrapped up with that, that twig. Um, and, and, uh, and so I was giving this talk and, and lo and behold, there's a little commotion in the back of the room. There are a couple hundred people there and um, his holiness, the Dalai Lama walked in, I guess he had <laughs> out there a bit and he put his hand down after my talk on the table. And he said, yeah, there's no reason to think that somebody is less valuable than anyone else because uh, their memory is more sporadic or less intact. And he said, what's important is their consciousness. They're, you know, And that's what the book argues, that people are still perfectly conscious of the smell of an apple pie that probably reminds them of grandma's kitchen when they were kids going to Thanksgiving, you know, or, you know, they can enjoy the, the cool breeze in the fall and the color of leaves. They can enjoy many, many things. Um, and, and, and so that's what we need to realize is that we're too too hypercognitive. I use that term in the book. I invented it. You know, hypercognitive when we when we come to think about who who really matters and who really doesn't. Yes, that's such a good point uh, because, as I think, unfortunately, some some topics in the news, so to speak. So, if I'm reading the newspaper or the online news or whatever, the video news they sort of have to simplify things and break them down uh, into short snippets. And so, you know, you'll, if you hear about, uh, you know, elders and aging and uh, Alzheimer's in the news, it's just a short snippet kind of fits into the, the kind of marketing world we live in where it's either this or it's that, or we're looking for a cure or whatever. And in, in, in all things i think and in, in almost anything if you are really uh open to learning and you're a learner and not somebody who just thinks they know everything uh you will find a deep lot of information and knowledge that strays on both sides of whatever somebody has distilled it down into and so like you said i love the idea of the fact that yes they still have senses that are working they still are conscious of something they just have lost some of the words and the language and the connections that they once had and i was trying to find here in the book as we were talking about how you used to have this conference uh, a certain way oh that's right here it is about learn first from the caregiver yes yes and how you over time 
you know, worked on changing the conferences uh, to have just so many different people and so many different angles. So family caregivers talking about their experiences, ethical concerns, wisdom of uh, helping those with Alzheimer's. And this included so many things like driving, nursing home placement, stopping uh, treatment, end-of-life debates, antibiotics, et cetera. You had an ethicist come in uh, who has been working with the families to address all these different concerns that can happen when someone has Alzheimer's and cannot, you know, they usually probably have a power of attorney, right? They're not speaking for themselves on medical decisions. Right. Uh, then you had a local physician, an elder health attorney, and others, and then questions and answers. Uh, and then later in the day, a full presentation on the latest science. And I love how that that conference order just makes sense to me yes. because I could just see like if there was a drug company, they would just start off with, here's the latest research and this is what we need to do. Oh, and then maybe there'd be like yeah. a side panel of this other, but starting with what is going on on the ground, what's going on with every caregiver here. Um, okay. Let's bring in this ethicist to talk about, let's look at bring in a physician. Let's bring in the elder health. Now let's bring in the research later on after the Q and a. So we're kind of starting with that important philosophy of how are we, you know, all of the difficult nuances of caring for somebody who can't fully respond to what maybe the, they want, you know, in their end of life situation um, to, you know, bringing in the science later, because what we're, what we're needing to address is the humanity of both the caregivers and their difficult emotional and psychological journeys, as well as those uh, they're caring for. Um, so feel free to comment on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I was so tired of going to these conferences with the lead off by neuroscientists who would lay out, they would download, you know, the latest scientific knowledge about X, Y, and Z. And you've got a room full of caregivers and mildly affected individuals. They don't give a hoot about this. They don't understand it. So when we did these conferences, and we did them all over the country, uh, um, we started with the care with with the affected individuals, typically, you know, who could still articulate for themselves, and ask them, "What's your experience of dementia?" and and really connect with them for five or ten minutes. There's an organization now that everybody needs to learn about called the Dementia Action. Alliance. I'm actually speaking for them in Indianapolis uh, in September. Um, they're very impressive. Um, and they are an organization of individuals uh, who are affected by dementia and their caregivers. And they actually have some great podcasts and they can be amazingly articulate and thoughtful. Um, they can speak about their anxieties. Of course, there'll come a time when people forget that they forget. And so then that sort of communication becomes more challenging. But um, yeah, so those conferences were great. And that's what really was the baseline for the National Alzheimer's Association ethics guidelines. We'd go over all the ethical issues, really from diagnosis to dying. Um, and that included, you know, do you want to use a feeding peg or not? I always favor assisted oral feeding because they'll actually live a little longer and they have the joys of 
palatial and social stimulation. Um, but everything, you know, so if someone gets a progressive dementia, do they still have to get insulin shots? And they no longer, by the way, have insight at a certain point into what that needle is for. Right. So, it, it, you know, for a lot of them, it's somewhere on a range between, you know, honestly, you know, subjectively, um, somewhere between assault and torture. So you might want to think twice about that. Do they still, if they have some chronic cardiac problem and they're wearing a big contraption on their back, this stuff can be really complicated now. Um, do they need that anymore? I would say no. If they're getting dialysis, well, you know, maybe early on, you know, but but do they do, do they have to be on dialysis as they become more uh, deeply and deeply forgetful? Um, I don't think so. I think that people have a right, if they determine this, uh, in consultation with their durable power of attorney or their family surrogate, um, to just let it go and, and and let nature take its course. So I, I you know, I'm I'm an advocate for that. Uh, um, and and so the ethical issues are many, many there. I mean, there there there's a chapter of I guess 16 ethical issues. Uh, you know, uh, what happens if grandma made me promise never to put her, put her in a nursing home? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer is obvious. If, if the caregiving becomes too complicated and unbearable for you, you need professional help. If that right. means a nursing home, it means a nursing home. Okay, so here's the story. So when I got to Cleveland, which was in 1988, that was a little while ago, um, and Joe Foley had recruited me. We wanted to start a program for uh, family caregivers and people with uh, dementia. And I did respite care for these family caregivers about a half a day a week, usually on a Friday, Friday afternoons. And that would allow the caregiver, because caregivers overall, and this is important, you know, because again, you're, I'm thinking of you as a psychologist and your audience, um, there is a little higher level of depression in caregivers than in the general population because they're under the strain of a 36 hour day, (laughs) you know, that makes sense. Yeah. Pretty wild. It can be pretty wild and you can have all kinds of difficult behaviors. And, and so it's terribly stressful for some less, less for some than others. But, but if you give them just that half a day a week where they can relax, you know, go out to get a cup of coffee with an old friend and talk things over, uh, go to a movie, go shopping, just go for a drive, go for a walk in the park. Um, I would say if you want to be preventive, walk with friends to a Greek restaurant for a mess for a Mediterranean diet. And <laughs> there you go. Laugh, laugh, laugh a little on the way home, stop by the library and uh, maybe do a little bit of a crossword puzzle. So I mean, just, you know, that's as good as it gets. But, but I, I do think that, um, the um, the thing with with uh, um, with all of this uh, is is that we need to. Um, where was I going with this? Just you you have to edit this. I'm sorry. Oh yeah yeah. It was uh, talking about the program in Cleveland for yeah, the care, program for Cleveland. caregivers. For respite. Yeah yeah. So I did respite uh, basically a half a day a week, and it's appropriate given the topic of this program. I would forget. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. If, if we're all a little deeply forgetful, we just have our moments. You know? Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I really 
got a lot out of this myself. And and then some years later, the Alzheimer's Association nationally had a big public policy forum in Washington, D.C. Uh, Congressman John Lewis, who was then still alive, gave a beautiful address. And um, it was all about respite care because we had done research studies showing that respite care um, uh, was very, very healthy for the caregivers and, and preserved them and was even financially beneficial because you wouldn't have to um, separate the caregivers and their affected individual uh, early on. I mean, they, they, could, they could do better and they could do longer. So we went up to the offices of congressmen and senators in the, in the twilight of the evening with these little electronic candles and we uh, and they were expecting us. Uh, it wasn't a revolution or anything. And, and we we asked them um, uh, if they could support respite care. And they all said that it was a great idea, but unfortunately they couldn't do it because if they supported respite care for Alzheimer's caregivers, they'd have to uh, support respite care for all kinds of other caregivers. Ah. And that would be too expensive. And this is what the, the first chapter of the book basically says in America, we think of ourselves as so independent and so invulnerable. Mm-hmm. But and, and that's okay at certain points in life. But ultimate, it's not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality, we come into this life, we're totally dependent. We get ill, we have a spinal injury, we're dependent. <clears throat> we get old and squirrely, we're dependent again. So the bottom line is that we're actually much more vulnerable and interdependent than we are invulnerable and independent. So I support, I support um, interdependence day. There you go. <laughs> I'm good for the Independence Day too. Don't get me wrong. You yeah, know, yeah. I'm from Cleveland, but I think we 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 need you know we we need interdependence day. Well, and you can see if we go in the philosophical realm how the hyper individualism of uh, what a lot of people espoused in our nation for the last several hundred years has infiltrated policies yeah. to the point where if anything is taken to its extreme. Uh, any behavior or any policy, it usually ends up having a negative effect or or effect maybe not intended. And so um, as we evolve as a society, trying to figure out how do we realistically address the uh, nuances of the different stages of life, acknowledge yes. the different stages of life yes. um, that we all will go through um, at some point, we all will you know, there are people out there that are 98 years old living independently and they eat a banana every day and go on a run or whatever. There's that guy who does the marathons, but this is the more rare situation often. And he of course needs help himself. He doesn't, I don't think he lives alone anymore, but he did for quite a while into his nineties, I think, but we all are going to need some type of, of help. And how do we build a society that allows um, it, it's difficult. How, how do we how do we get the needs? Like you said, the caregivers need respite. Yes, they do. They they're very you know they're taxed by helping others and not being able to focus on what they want and need as much. And then how do we include those into policies of of money and politics and whatnot? I was talking to a financial advisor I have friends with recently. Oh, good. He said, yeah. um, 
He said, you'd be amazed at how many wealthy individuals will decline my recommendation that they get disability insurance and other life insurance policies and um, other policies that would protect them if they got injured or or died early would protect their family or their business. And he said, I now have a waiver that I have everyone sign up. They decline these very minimal costs for, for wealthy individual um, policies. That And because he said in the past, other financial um, advisors had been sued because the family said, well, why didn't you, you know, they, you, you manage hundreds of thousands of dollars of this wealthy individual's assets. Why didn't you get them on a disability? policy. And they said, well, I did, but they declined. Well, where is it in writing right now? We're suing you. <laughs> so, so it's interesting how, how the ego and humans, we, we have this idea of invincibility, which can help us in certain parts of our life. But at some point in our life, we have to evolve past that. Um, yes. Ram Das talks about in one of his uh, books about how he cared for his father and moved in for his father at, towards the end of his life. And it, I'm not really sure what happened to his father, but his father couldn't really remember anything in the, in the recent past. He only remembered his childhood. Right. And eventually Ram Dass was changing his diapers. And, uh, and he said that, you know, people said, well, why would you want to do that? Or why would you want to give up your life to do that? And he said, this was one of the greatest things in my life that I came into this world. My dad changed my diapers and now I'm helping him on the way out. And as he helped him, instead of the nurses, uh, you know, the, the father preferred his own son. He, you know, I don't know if he could really tell it was his son, but he was, he was happy. He was so happy about being taken care of. And, and, and they actually had the best relationship they ever had <laughs> at wow. the end, at the end. So I think about those stories and, and how, um, we can get so focused on where we're at in life and not thinking about the big picture, maybe because the big picture is scary. It's complicated, all these things. So I'm glad that you've written a book that addresses. Yeah. Um, all, you know, th this predicament, but also, and some of the end of life issues. Yeah. Yeah. So this is all, uh, so important and you stated so well, I love Ram Das's experience, you know, in America, we provide caregivers. I use this language in the first chapter. It's a little bit, uh, harsh, but it's true. We basically give them the equivalent of leftovers and scraps. Mm. Now, in our healthcare system, we require people to spend down into poverty so they don't have anything more than fifteen dollars or $20,000 in assets. If they have a house, a caregiver has a house, they have to, you know, let the bank, you know, the government through the bank, uh, you know, take out uh, most of the value of it before they can actually qualify um, for entitlements. Mm. And this, this is... This is unnecessary. So, you know, I don't idealize Canada, by the way, but in Canada, uh, Canada's okay. It's got a lot of nice things in it, um, uh, but so does America. Um, but in Canada, I've been all through Canada. In Canada, in every province, they have a Good Samaritan program, which is nationally funded, and it provides everybody with free hospice care, free long-term care, nursing care, and so forth. And so there isn't this incredible pressure on families. The society as a whole takes some of this on itself. Um, and I think that's a pretty good idea. Same thing in the Netherlands, same thing in Switzerland. So I, there's, there's a chapter in this book um, 
called The 17th Question, Preemptive Assisted Suicide. Oh, yes. And I talk, it's because it's relevant to this thing, what we're talking about now. And I talk about a street clown in San Francisco who is diagnosed with probable dementia. He's getting a little worse. He can no longer be out on the steps of the San Francisco library doing his, his entertaining thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he doesn't have, he's, 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 he's what they call sometimes unbefriended, or there's another way of talking about it. I don't like it as much, but the live alones. He has no family members who can be his advocate in the system and keep a tube out of every orifice, natural and unnatural later on. You know? So he doesn't trust the system. And he gets on a plane and he flies to Switzerland. And there's that big operation there called Dignitas. And he's euthanized. And um, this goes on in the Netherlands as, as well. And now Americans are actually going to Quebec because Quebec has last couple of years a new policy in this area. Um, they can't do it in, anywhere in the U.S. because in the U.S. you've got to be lucid of mind and within six months of dying for you to avail yourself of, you know, whatever it is, 40 sequinols and so forth. But by the time someone is within six months of dying, their their, their agency has long since deteriorated. So uh, my problem, I, you know, in, in America, uh, we don't have this structure of justice. We don't provide much for people. So if we had an option for preemptive assisted suicide, wouldn't it be forced to some degree? I mean, it would be the way you'd go to lighten the burden on your family. That's how I would think of it personally, you know? Yeah. And and so at least if I'm in Canada, you know, I, I'm not thinking in that way. I'm thinking just simply, do I really want to go through this? Yeah. There's a difference. That is a big difference because you're going to suffer, but in, in one way you suffer, but you have this nursing and this hospice care built into the system, or you suffer and hope your family can pay for your family can help you. Hopefully you have the right insurance policies like we talked about, or hopefully you have assets. And if you, well, okay, then what? You use up your assets and you can't give it to your loved ones. I mean, it's it's kind of a, it's it's a little bit, uh, like you said, individualistic, but to, to, I think to my personal opinion is to the extreme where where it starts putting a, a negative value on your life versus versus your life has value innately. Your life uh, is economically dragging down your loved ones. And so of course, many individuals who want to give their families uh, a better shot than they had or whatever, would probably opt for assisted suicide or something like that just to out of money, which is very, I don't know what to think of that, but that is- uh, Especially with the price of gas. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that is sad to think about that, you know, to, to think, oh, you know, I, I'm going to help my family. So I guess I'm just going to go a few years early. You know, that that is, that's a tough, tough decision right there. Tough decision. But people make that decision. And I actually talk about it in that chapter because, you know, so I knew most of the neurologists in, in, in Cleveland and, you know, they, people with- who suspect that they have dementia will go to a neurologist. And while they're still able, they'll, they'll not infrequently ask, listen, I don't want to go through this. Um, it's too much of a burden on my family and it's, and I'm going to lose some capacities. And I don't think I should be forced to go through this decline. Um, 
How about assisted suicide? Of course, the doctors don't do that because it's against the law and it's against their oath and the like, but they will occasionally prescribe those 40 secanols. And there's actually a movie about this um, called Alice, mm. which is a really interesting one. I won't go into it. But uh, so there were a couple of families I knew, and these were pretty well-to-do uh, families from Cleveland who, uh, who, who are sort of the, some historic families in a, in a way. And, and grandma really did not want to go, she, you know, feisty, 95-year-old woman did not want to go through this decline. She found it completely embarrassing. And not that she didn't love her family, but she just didn't want to deal with this. In Dutch, you know, in the Netherlands, they call it untloistering, self-effacement. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons people give for availing themselves of assisted suicide. So they had a they had a nice house right on the shores of Lake Erie, and um, she asked me if I would just bear witness to this. I'm not a supporter of preemptive assisted suicide, but on the other hand, you know, there's a passage I like since you're in Grand Rapids. <laughs> Judge not, lest ye be judged. There you go. <laughs> you know? And so I, I, I take that pretty seriously. I'm not going to judge somebody for that kind of a, a, of a, of a viewpoint. So I, I attended this and um, I didn't condone it, but I was there. I prayed with this family. There were no grandchildren because I didn't want this solution to life's problems to sort of spill over intergenerationally and give people uh suicide as a resolution to life's problems. There's right. too many teenagers jumping off roofs at NYU, you know. In, right. You know. So, but but for an older person who really has been there, done that, they're looking back at life, they've lived a good life, and now they just want to take it under their own wing as they leave. I don't have a problem with that. So, the you know, the fire would be burning. Um, They'd have the 40 secanols in a chocolate milkshake. Uh, they'd be playing Johann Sebastian Bach or Vivaldi or whomever, you know, uh, uh, maybe Stairway to Heaven. You know? Right. And, 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 and actually, in one instance, that was the case because I, I witnessed two or three of these things. And, um, uh, you know, you can imagine Jimmy Page, you know, playing away and then, and then everybody, you know, holding hands and grandma swallowing that uh, milkshake. And then, you know, after half an hour, she drifts into sleep and she's, she's gone pretty soon thereafter. And it wasn't traumatic. It wasn't despairing. It wasn't hopeless. Um, it, I didn't think it was nefarious or evil. I thought, you know, I, I don't, again, I don't advocate for this because I'm so into it. And the whole book is about finding a way to care and include individuals who are deeply forgetful in our lives, in our culture, in our society, and even learn from them as they're, although they're, they're, they can be difficult, but they're also differently abled. So I'm all for that, but I'm not gonna hold that as the ultimate Trump reason, Trump, Trump you know, knock down, drag out reason to, uh, to say that somebody shouldn't have a right to go out on their own terms. Absolutely. Yes. And I, and you do address many of these ethical quandaries in the book. Um, now, one of my questions I like to ask is sort of, I mean, we have so many different 
range of listeners from graduate students to uh, therapists to people interested in philosophy to people that will just find this title and randomly come to this podcast because they want to know about deeply forgetful people and, and and caregivers journeys and what to do so um i know you know obviously i would say hey get the book from your local library or uh, or buy it or or something like that to learn more but how else can people get involved if they want to get involved with groups or um you know yeah i guess groups that would be helping caregivers or or educating people about um alzheimer's disease and deeply forgetful people what what are some resources that you would recommend well you know most places have a local Alzheimer's Association, um, but also there are other organizations. In New York, um, the major organization is called Caring Kind, and they do beautiful things. They do all these great activities. Remember, you know, you're you know, as a psychologist, when people talk about passive hope, they're going to come up with a magic bullet in that laboratory down in Chicago, <laughs> you know, but active hope is, wait a minute. There are things I can do actively right now with my loved one, with other people. So support groups are important. A lot of churches have good support groups. A lot of synagogues do. I'm doing something in Pittsburgh in a, in a month with the whole diocese of Pittsburgh, because they have this big caregiver support program. And so um, I think those are ways to think about it. And there are these organizations like the Dementia Action Alliance, which includes, include, you know, increasingly has chapters all over the country. And they're, that's great. I mean, they're not banking on a miracle. They're, you know, they don't, they, they think this is too complicated for some magic bullet to come speeding down the road, but they, they're very creative in what they do. And I like them a lot. Uh, so that's what I would say. And, you know, the other thing I just want to, so, you know, I'm a huge Chicago product through and through. <laughs> and uh, uh, so some of your listeners are probably Hyde Parkers, you know. Right. And um, I uh, I had the honor when I was in, in, in Chicago of studying with a neurologist, a neurophysiologist who won the Nobel Prize. And his name was Sir John Eccles. So most of what we knew originally about how synapses communicate, you know, axons and things like that, he figured all that out and he got the Nobel Prize for it. And he'd been at Oxford and, and, and Chicago. So I just want to, on the more spiritual side, because you have a wide audience, I just want to read one quote from Sir John Eccles, which I happen to agree with. Not everybody will, because this is more of a metaphysical thing. Um, but it's just four or five lines. I maintain that the human mystery is incredibly demeaned by scientific reductionism with its claim in promissory materialism to account eventually for all of the spiritual world in terms of patterns of neuronal activity. This belief must be classed as a superstition. This is by the guy who discovered patterns of neuronal activity. We have to recognize that we are spiritual beings with souls existing in a spiritual world 
as well as material beings with bodies and brains existing in a material world. So for Sir John Eccles, the possibility that you could have a lot of neurological deterioration picked up by scans and whatever, but that the self underneath it, however opaque, could still be there fully, but just hidden. You know, that was for him pretty much the model. And so when I talk in the book about paradoxical lucidity, about people who have been long gone, absent, and so forth, but then with the right stimulation, they'll come into themselves and they'll, they'll be able to kind of have a sense of conversation for a brief period. You know, then I wonder, is that just some little fragment of their neurology firing off in some corner of their brain that could explain this sort of return of a whole self? Or is the whole self always there lurking underneath? I love to tell the story. I lived in Detroit for a couple of years. I was actually at Ann Arbor for, for, for two years, and I would go into Detroit for the Detroit Symphony, and they had a great uh, composer, Leonard Slack, and some of your listeners will appreciate him. I love Michigan, by the way. We, we had a great time in Ann Arbor. And um, so one time Leonard Slatkin did uh, Appalachian Spring, uh, uh, Aaron Copeland's great symphony. And he said... Aaron Copeland, the last four years of his life, he struggled with Alzheimer's disease. And he moved up to his country home along the Hudson River in Peekskill. And people from New York and from all over the world would still come into New York and they'd take the train up the Hudson River line to visit him in Peekskill. And they'd talk with him respectfully, even though he couldn't have a conversation, but they always assumed that he was there, okay? And they gave him the benefit of the doubt. And they would talk thoughtfully with him, even though, again, he couldn't respond. But what he did was sporadically, he would rise up and he would go to the piano and he would play, clear as a bell, the six notes that form the two chords that are the basic structure of Appalachian Spring. And then the great Leonard Slatkin, he was one of the great uh, conductors. He would turn to the audience before he started to conduct the piece and he would say, so what was Copeland trying to tell us? Mm. Was he trying to say, I'm still here? Was he trying to say, this is what I want to be remembered for. And then he would turn around and start conducting. Wow. You can find this on YouTube. I mean, and, and, and that's what I want to say is that, that you know, whether you, whatever your metaphysics, whether you think this is all explicable in a purely neurological context or whether it requires something a little more imaginative, <laughs> okay, uh, it's there. Yeah, I, I think that is a great way to sort of summarize uh, some of the larger philosophical points behind the whole conversation. Um, just on a, a side, a personal aside, I remember um, my grandmother had a bunch of small strokes and ended up in a nursing home. They said Louis body was the type of uh, cognitive decline that she had, but I'm not quite, we're not really quite sure. Um, 
And when she got on hospice, she ended up living like eight to 10 more years because apparently that helped having the interaction. And, um, you know, my mom would go over there every day and talk to her and all of that. And I remember two sides of it. I remember on one hand, some of the relatives, uh, had a really hard time, um, coping with the fact that her, 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 well, at first it was her short-term memory that went away and she was thought she was a little girl living in Chicago and thought mm-hmm. we were all different people later on, not really knowing who anybody was. And then later on losing language completely, they had a really hard time with that. It kind of got, ad- they got, would get agitated. Don't you remember me, mom? And that sort of thing. Yeah. And my mom did a lot of work around it. So she wasn't agitated. She was just more sad, I think. But I remember going over there after she had lost language, you know, cause I saw the various stages over, geez, 10 years of this. <laughs> And, um, I remember, you know, cause I had just got done with some psychology courses and I don't know, I was in town and I asked my parent, I asked my mom, I said, what was her favorite musical artist? You know, uh, when she was, when you remember growing up, she said, oh, it's Neil Diamond. So my brother and I started singing sweet Caroline to her and she got so excited <laughs> and she just started babbling. And I don't know what she was exactly saying. I remember, I remember my brother and I were like, she was like very emphatically saying, and I remember she said something about like the pyramids and something. I remember the word pyramid, which I was like, where is that coming from? But, but I remember her so happy. And and, and it was like, she was, she kept like touching this pillow and like pointing it towards us as if she wanted us to keep singing more Neil Diamond. And so then I think my mom uh, eventually got her like a music player um, that could play old music uh for her in her room and uh she was very happy about it so is was she underneath there the whole time you know and just ha- couldn't communicate uh, i i i tend to think so I, that's kind of where i'm coming from it's like yeah. i talked to somebody who uh, whose friend was in a coma recently and the friend got out of the coma and the friend said to them um they were in a coma for geez four or five weeks a, a medically induced because of a car accident and the, the friend said to them the other week they and this person told me this they said you know the whole time i was in the hospital or whatever i didn't know what was going on but i felt like i was floating in water and she goes that's all i remember was that i thought i was floating in water and when i finally woke up i went oh i'm not floating in water i'm in some sort of bed here but they thought for four or five weeks whatever it was they were in this medically induced coma i'm floating in water that was their thought so they had a thought yeah. Uh, while in a medically induced coma that they remembered, which I thought was really interesting. So anyway, it's very complicated to say what, what is, you know, like, I like how you leave it open to whatever people's perspective is, but I like to kind of have a little bit of both. Uh, that's, that's my, I like to have a little bit of both. I like to bring in the materialism, but I, I feel like with that, without any other mystery, it's, it, it becomes boring. So anyway. Yeah. I, and, and you know, the, the great philosophers of mind, um, Many of them take this position that that mind is not just derivative from matter. That it's this, it's so different from matter. I mean, in all the great spiritual traditions, mind precedes everything else. There is this mind beyond time and 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 place, uh, the supreme mind, and from that comes the universe in the form of a big bang and so forth. And, and most of the Hindus, I talked about the Hindus in Mount Vernon, Ohio, you know, for them, um, you know, our minds are our participation in the one mind. And some great physicists I've known over the years have taken that idea very seriously. By the way, 
people with dementia, their linear rationality may be limited, severely limited, but they can still be incredibly creative. So in the book, I talk about Willem de Kooning, who was a great abstract expressionist, but his, his work was so violent. I mean, it was, he was the artist of the age of anxiety. So he's diagnosed at Cornell Medical Hospital with probable Alzheimer's. It's always just probable. It's like probable Lewy body, you know. Uh, I had to be careful about not getting too concrete. Uh, and 13 and a half of 14 years before he passed away, he spent in a loft with, with an assistant. And he, he, he liked wearing his dungarees every day. They had a couple of sets of them and he, so they could change him. And um, he would sporadically rise up. He'd dip his paint in the acrylic. And, he'd, you know, as I was saying earlier, and he would go and he would paint. He would paint. And, and his stuff revealed a kind of kindness and warmth. It was a little bit like Georgia O'Keeffe. It wasn't the kind of heavy-duty stuff of his earlier career. And when this exhibit was, was completed, there were some reviewers um, and I read the reviews and most of them said, well, wait a minute, this is an embarrassment to the great Willem de Kooning because he was just a, you know, he, he was a shell of his former self. But then somebody said, wait a minute, this is a guy who had a progressive dementia of some kind or another. And for 13 and a half years, he kind of knew who he was, mm. you know? And, and how do you explain that? Um, it's complicated, you know? So I, I have a wonderful African-American pastoral friend. He used to be the head of the board of Morehouse College. Um, he's from Detroit originally. He's well into his eighties now. His sister passed away and he was up in Detroit and we were, conversing by phone and and I said you know so in those last weeks and days did you think she was there did you think she was still there and he said well I I, I hope so and I said you know what I think pastor I he, he runs a big African-American church in the inner city um, mm -hmm. I said I think Maybe she went down to the Amtrak station in Detroit and she had one foot on that train bound for glory. Mm. So she was just ahead of us all. And when someone's silent, I mean, in, in India, the gurus will go to a, a, a cave north of Delhi and they'll just be silent for days and days and days. And it's a spiritual discipline. Well, Okay, so this is different. It's imposed by a neurological deterioration. But how can we say that because someone is, is essentially mute, that, that there, there is not something mysterious and meaningful going on that we don't fully understand? And I think right there, the mystery is, I think, where I think is a perfect place to leave off. Yeah. Um, and I think you've given a wonderful uh, preview of the book. Uh, and it was very readable, uh, like your last book that I read. Uh, it's it's just a page turner. It, it, the subject matter may be difficult, but the, the spacing of the chapters and the, the chapter heads make it easy to kind of get the point. Uh, 
And I, I think that's one of the best parts about, you know, when you read a book, is it, is it readable? Yes, very readable. So I, I'm excited to, to have people hear this episode and to get involved. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a pleasure interviewing you. Is there anything you didn't say that you want to say before we head off air? Well, no, just that, you know, this book, because I spent 30 or 40 years, you know, traveling the country, working with caregivers and support groups, you know, it's, it's got more of my heart in it than anything I've done. And so I'm very happy, Paul, that when you look at the way it's set up, even the table of contents, you know, is like actually interesting. <laughs> You know? Yes, I, I saw that. That was not a typical table of contents. You have like subparts under oh, each yeah. chapter, and I love that. It's very, it's almost like an index in a way. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's it's easy to navigate. So, but people are loving the book, and 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 I'm doing this plenary for the Dementia Action Alliance and and lots of other organizations, and I I just want to let your listeners know that you know if they if they want to do something with me by zoom or whatever it might be uh i'm perfectly happy to be available oh wonderful wonderful i think that's a great opportunity for people that may be wanting to start a chapter of one of these organizations in their locale um to have you as a guest now thanks to the internet we can now have you speaking wherever you want without having to jump on a train and a plane and an automobile so that's right yeah that's so right. And it's just Stephen with a PhD post at gmail.com. Oh, wonderful. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes as, as long as well as your website and the, the books uh, links for people to uh, get involved that way and reach out. So thank you so much, Dr. Post, for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. You do such a beautiful job, Paul. I'm really honored to be able to converse with you. It's a delight, actually. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please share with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. If you want to get connected with Stephen G. Post, I will have links in the show notes of this episode wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you are on iTunes, please hop on over and give us a rating as we would really appreciate it. It helps us reach a larger audience. If you are searching for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I am now an EMDRIA consultant and can provide 20 hours needed to become EMDR International Association certified. I have groups both online and in person as well as individual consultation. Check out my websites, counselingsupervisorgr.com or healthforlifegr.com or email me and we will talk about a possibility of you joining the group. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians at Health for Life Grand Rapids. If you want, if you are in the state of Michigan, you can see anybody online from our office, or if you are in the Grand Rapids area, you can come check out Health for Life Counseling, also known as the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids, by visiting www.health 
forlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. And while these may be based upon literature, experience in fields, and research, they should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 to reach your local authorities if it's life and death. And in a psychological process, the National Suicide Prevention Crisis Lifeline now. You can dial 988 and you can also text 988. The old number 1-800-273-8255 will still work, but anyone now can text a crisis counselor at 988 or call 988 and someone will talk to you 24 hours per day. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your home while knowing that you are supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist or a counselor and you are not a member of your local counseling organization, please get involved. Some examples are the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association in Michigan, the Arizona Counselors Association, the American Counseling Association, and the American Mental Health Counselors Association. These organizations all work on varying degrees of keeping quality mental health services available across the United States, increasing education, promoting best practices, and making sure that we are all licensed and available to help people. If you are looking to be trained in EMDR therapy, I prefer EMDR training solutions. You can check them out in the show notes and use the code INTENTIONAL at checkout to get $100 off your first training. Until next time on The Intentional Clinician, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week.